Church, will you pray with me? Dear Heavenly Father, I, I thank you uh, for bringing us here this morning to sing your praise, to hear your word. Um, Father, I pray that you would do a work in our hearts this morning. Open us uh, up to, to understand what you have at it for us this morning, God, what, what it is that, that you see that we need to hear, Father, I, I pray that you would speak through David in a way that would break down walls of, of distraction, doubt, discomfort, and lead us to be more like you as we sit in your house this morning. You are a good God. You are a God who has led me here this morning, who has led us to worship your name You are a God who has designed us with eyes to see you. So, Father, I pray, open them for us. Let us see you this morning. Jesus, it is in your name that we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Right, great morning of worship. Thank you all for leading us in that. It's good to see everyone here. And as we close in on the end of our uh, current series, Rethinking Church Fellowship, I say closing in because like last week I, I said that you know, the message last week would probably be in two parts. It's very possible it will be three parts. So just kind of giving you a heads up there. We're going to see. Uh, how this goes this morning, but um, it's important that we, we, we talk about this, that we, we really get serious about what it means to be the church and what fellowship is supposed to be among us. We have looked at you know, the, the words for uh, church, which is ecclesia, and the word for, ko- uh, for fellowship is koinonia, and as we look through this, our understanding or our goal for understanding is to, to know the nature and the makeup of the church, the ecclesia, and to understand and experience true koinonia. So as we start, and I'm going to have to, I'm going to go through this uh, at a pretty decent clip, but hopefully not enough to leave anyone behind. So I want to put a couple of, of, of working definitions, one you've seen since we've started, but the other, I want us to talk about this local church. And so I have a, a working kind of a definition, so to speak, or explanation. And I want you to just read it with me just in your head. Don't read it out loud because that would be weird. The local church consists of redeemed individuals who have agreed to live in covenant with one another, standing together on the essential doctrines of the faith as expressed through the word of God, committing to grow together in koinonia. So it is that local group of believers who have been redeemed. That's what makes them believers. And they agree to live in covenant with one another. 
That's what we've been talking a lot about. To live in covenant means we are going to commit to one another. Doesn't mean you can never leave. This is not a cult. It is just the, it is the idea that we enter into a mutual agreement with one another. That we're going to be with one another. We're going to stand with one another. We're going to encourage, challenge, hold accountable, support in any way that we can. And when things get hard, we're not just going to run. When things get hard, we're not going to turn on each other, even if we are in disagreement with one another, which can happen. That happens in families, right? If I I could get an amen, I'm sure for pretty much everybody in the house. But we work it out. When we don't, what's that called? Dysfunction. right? Broken. We're not called to be broken or dysfunctional. We're called to be in community with each other and so we live in covenant with one another we stand on the essential doctrines that is communicated in the word of God and we are committed to growing in koinonia now I think most everybody's been here through this series if not I would just want to read the definition every week I've kind of explained again the definition of koinonia I don't want to do that today I just want to read that and we'll move on but koinonia is a deep self-revelatory self-sacrificing Covenant relationship within the ecclesia, established by the effectual call of the Father into unity with Christ based on the atoning work of Christ, then expressed in the same kind of unity, the same kind of unity that we're, uh, we're uh, brought together in Christ, with each other as we hear, we sp- respond to, and we live according to the gospel. Now, when you look at this and when you think about this, you cannot share in koinonia if you are not sharing in giving of yourself. If you're not opening up, if you're not sharing, giving of your, of your stuff for the benefit of each other. Koinonia requires and even assumes generosity. We talked about that in the first part last week of what generosity is, what it means what is, in, what is entailed in it. And I mentioned last week that most of us, and I think probably all of us, will find ourselves in different seasons of our lives when it comes to resources in particular. There are going to be times and seasons in our lives. I know we've gone through it. Many of you have gone through it. Some of you are in it or you're going to go into it where we just don't feel like we have enough. It feels like we're struggling in every way. And I think everybody goes through that from time to time. And I know what we have learned and what we understand through the Word of God in dealing with trials is they tend to do a couple of different things. One, they can just push us back to Jesus. If we've wandered off in some kind of sin or, or irresponsibility or whatever, it can push us back to Jesus, as we were talking about in our prayer time. There are times when I may walk out of the will of God and I start to walk in a particular direction and sometimes things just may not go well for me and that may be the time that the Lord is graciously just kind of stepping back a little bit or putting some things there that will actually have me turn my eyes back to Jesus and and growing in that and that second part is with or without the stepping out of disobedience we can think about Job. Sometimes it's just where God shows us or is in process of revealing something more about himself to us. And sometimes we have to get outside of the comfort. We have to get outside of that place where everything is going well for us. Everything is perfect. We have all we need. We have an abundance to the point where we just kind of sit back and go, we're on cruise control right now. And there are times when the Lord blesses us 
by showing and growing us in trust, in our trust of him. That is a very gracious thing for him. A second season that we might find ourselves in is where we feel like, you know what, we are doing pretty well. We, we feel like we're receiving the blessings of God and, you know, materially or whatever, and we, we feel like, you know what, I actually have, I have an abundance. I actually have more than I actually need. And when we find ourselves in that place, it's important for disciples of Jesus to say, why? Why? We don't often ask that question. We're just, we're just glad we're there. Like, we remember those seasons of, of dry, of those seasons of struggling. It's, and Karen and I went through a whole lot of that in our early life. Most of our married life was like that. And so it's like, whew, I'm just glad I'm not there anymore. But we need to, as believers, as followers of Jesus, as members of the ecclesia, who want to live in koinonia, why have I been given more than I need? And most of us in this country can ask that question when it comes to the entire world. We all have so much more than most of the world. And we need to ask ourselves, why? What's the reason? What's the purpose? What am I supposed to do? And yes, God gives us all things to enjoy. 1 Timothy 6, 17 is very clear in that. But we need to cultivate generosity in our lives. We need to cultivate it, understanding that it is always an outgrowth of the gospel that has been implanted in our lives changing us from self-centered hoarders to joy-filled givers. Because sometimes we cross that line. We've been given things to enjoy, but sometimes it's easy to cross that line where it's just like, it starts, my focus, especially, you know, when we're going through those seasons of struggle, where, and the Lord gets our attention, it's like, oh yeah, I've got my eyes locked on Jesus because I'm not going to make it any other way. And things begin to go well for us, and we, we can still kind of be, following Jesus, we can definitely still follow Jesus because otherwise the word wouldn't say that that's possible. But the more we have, the more our tendency, tendency, not always, is to start to turn and our focus starts to be more on, on me. And so we have to cultivate this. I think a great example of joy-filled givers was the church in Macedonia which includes the the church in Thessalonica, which we spent a year going through. And in 2 Corinthians Corinthians chapter 8, if you will turn there with me, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 through 5. I'll give you a chance to turn in your order or flip through your phone. So again, Paul is talking to the Corinthian church. But he says here in verse 1, We want you to know, brothers and sisters. I do that every time. Brothers and sisters. So what we know is he's talking to the church. He's talking to those redeemed members of the ecclesia that are part of that local body, that local expression in Corinth. And he says, We want you to know about the grace of God that was given to the churches of Macedonia. So Paul states before describing what happened, that this is the grace of God. He gives you a preview, right? So so whatever he is saying after this is a reflection of the grace of God in the life of the churches in Macedonia. And so what does he say about that? 
He says in verse 2, during a severe trial brought about by affliction. Well, wow, that's a great way to follow this is the grace of God. And we won't go into that because this really isn't about trials at this point. But, but we know that trials, James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4, talks about trials being a great benefit because they encourage our growth. And so we are to embrace the trials. We need to let them do the work in our lives. But he's saying here, during a severe trial brought by affliction, he says, their abundant joy and their extreme poverty overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. That is a weird structure to me. Their abundant joy and their extreme poverty. And so somehow this extreme joy and this extreme poverty work together under the grace of God to do something. And it says it did this, it overflowed in a wealth, and I love the choice there, a wealth of generosity on their part. They have extreme poverty, but it overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. And then he goes on, he says, I can testify that according to their ability, even beyond their ability, of their own accord. No coercion, he makes really, really clear. They weren't coerced to do this. He says, they begged us. Okay, affliction. We know in the church of Thessalonica, there was afflictions from both within the church and outside the church. They had pressures of all kinds. They were saying, we, in our poverty, but our joy, and that's going to be key, it overflowed and they begged us earnestly for the privilege of sharing in the ministry to the saints. How many of you look at giving, even in poverty, as a privilege? Well, there's something different in these people. There's something going on. There's some secret maybe that they know that maybe we don't know so much because they had an attitude that was like begging Paul, please take our money. Please take our resources for the ministry of the saints. Verse 5. And not just as we had hoped. Instead, they gave themselves first to the Lord. There's a key. First to the Lord and then to us by God's will. So, the circumstances that they were in was rough. They were tough. They weren't getting better. And so it wasn't, it wasn't like they, they kind of looked at themselves and they said, you know what, I think the economy's turning around. I, I think that... I think the wave of difficulties is starting to to get better. The outlook, the prediction, the projection of our situation looks better. And so because of that, Paul, we really want to give. No, there was no indication that it was going to get better. There was every indication that it was going to get worse. There was every indication that things would not turn to their advantage when it comes to what they had and what they were experiencing. It was ramping up. And yet, their circumstances of extreme poverty and difficulty and pressure did not dictate their actions. What did? It was abundant joy. It was the abundant joy they had that dictated their action. Now, where did the joy come from? Well, we think back to the Thessalonican church. It was the gospel that had been shared to them that led to transformation in their lives. And this is an an evidence of transformation of something supernatural that happened in their lives where they were transformed from death, Ephesians chapter 2, death 
to joy-filled life that was evidenced by godly generosity and not determined by circumstances. And we all need to just pause for a minute and go, how do I line up with that? If that's, if that's the gospel transformation, where am I in my sanctification? Where am I in my walk with Jesus that I am that I'm experiencing expression, expressing that kind of life within the body. <coughs> Excuse me. The evidence of gospel transformation is not that you know all the right answers. A lot of religious people know all the right answers. They know what to say at the right time, at the right way. But you exhibit a joyful, loving life lived out in sacrificial gospel community. Gospel koinonia. Now, the Corinthian Christians, so we talked about the Macedonian Christians. Now, remember, Paul is writing to the Corinthian Christians who uh, were in a Roman province called Achaia. It was located in Greece. We see in 2 Corinthians, they had the same zeal, the same joy-filled zeal that the Macedonian church had. So look at 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 1 through 2. Excuse me. Now Paul says, Now concerning the ministry to the saints, it is unnecessary for me to write. For now I know of your eagerness. There's that word, that clue word, that they had the same kind of joy-filled zeal that the Macedonian church had. And I boast about you to the Macedonians. Achaia, quote, he's saying this to the Macedonians. Achaia has been ready since last year. And your zeal has stirred up most of them. Your zeal has stirred them up. So what this tells me is that one thing we see is that joy-filled kingdom acts of faith are contagious. When when someone acts in faith and they step out and, and it is filled with joy, even when it costs them dearly, and we see the work of God in their lives. It's contagious. Generosity is contagious because when we have received a blessing, there is a desire to be a blessing. So koinonia may be fueled by your generosity. It may be fueled by your zeal to meet needs, to, to reach out, to give of what you have and sometimes what you don't have. It may be fueled by your taking care of the needs of someone else in the fellowship of giving gener- generously to the work of the church or giving to people who are going to other parts of the world to take the gospel to where it is not yet been taken, has not yet been taken. Or all of those things. All of that is kingdom work. But you may be the catalyst for taking us deeper into Koinonia Fellowship. You. You might be the one that triggers that within our body. Now, before we go further... Though we're talking about giving, obviously, financially is what the the primary crux of this is. (coughs) It's not just that. Generosity involves giving of ourselves. So it's giving of your time and your talent and your financial resources in whatever way that you're able to do that. But we focus so much on money because Jesus did. Your attitude about your money is going to shape much of your, pros- uh, your propensity for generosity. And if that weren't the case, then Jesus wouldn't have spent so much time talking about it. He wouldn't have focused, have focused so much on the subject. 
And so we have to determine our priorities, and that is usually most revealed by our bank account, by our record of our resources, of what we're doing with what we have. But secondly, certainly, it is our talents and our time, and none of this happens by accident. See, God works this in. It is the gospel that brings the transformation. It is the gospel that changes us. It is that life that has been implanted within us where we go from death to life because of the work of Jesus on the cross, the Spirit of God convicting us and bringing us to a point of repentance. But then we are called to work that out. And so I want to point out just a couple of helpful guidelines that we see in a couple of passages. So one of the overarching instructions on giving besides being generous, right? It's generosity besides that overarching teaching is that we have to be intentional to give thought to what, where, and uh, how we will give. And with that comes counting the cost. And if you've been walking with Jesus for any time, you know that it, it's costly. Jesus said, if you don't deny yourself, you can't, you can't come after me. You've got to deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. And so that is costly and, and we have to count the cost. And if we're going to walk in, in koinonia together in this ecclesia with the, the church universal, we've got to count the cost on what that looks like and who we're going to be and how we're going to live. And so, so first, we have, to, we have to pursue the right attitude. It starts with the heart, the condition of the heart. And where is my mind tuned? Is my mind focused on me? Is my mind focused on what I can get, how the opportunities that I can have? And that's where I start. We have to pursue the right attitude. Luke chapter 14, verses 28 to 33. Jesus says, For which of you wanting to build a tower doesn't first sit down and calculate the cost to complete it to see if he has enough to complete it? And he's talking in the context of following him. Verse 29, Otherwise, after he's laid the foundation and cannot finish it, all the onlookers will ridicule him, saying, This man started to build, but he wasn't able to finish. Or what king going to war against another king will not first sit down and decide if he's able with 10,000 to oppose the one who comes to him with 20,000? If not, while the other is still far off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. Verse 33, in the same way, therefore, every one of you who does not renounce all his possessions cannot be my disciple. Now, Again, somebody can read that and go, I have to sell everything I have. He's, that's not what he's saying. Clearly, that's not what he's saying. But he is saying, that cannot be your God. That cannot be your focus. That I am willing to hold with open hands what is not mine to begin with. So it is, it is a situation of ownership. And you and I are not owners of anything. And if anything will prove that is every time we have experienced the death of someone who is close to us or someone we know, in anybody, anywhere, nothing went with them. It all goes somewhere else or to someone else. So we are caretakers and we just have to be careful that we don't, we don't start putting that label on it. It's mine. It's mine. If I'm going to follow Jesus, I have to renounce that and be willing. And now, is that easy? Not in this world, and not in this place in the world in which we live. It's a, hard, it's a struggle. I know I feel it. I suspect you do as well. It's, it is a difficult thing to do, but we have to count the cost. 
We have to do the hard work. Secondly, after we have pursued the right attitude, we have to determine prayerfully, determine the right action. What am I supposed to do now? Because first is that attitude of the heart. I've renounced it as being mine. I know that I can't have this. I can't take it with me. It's ultimately going to rot here. Now that I've I've worked on that attitude, I've prayerfully considered, Lord, how should I approach what you have given to me? Now I ask about what are the right actions? What are the things that I'm supposed to do? 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 2. He says, On the first day of the week, each of you is to set something aside and save in keeping with how he is prospering so that no collections will need to be made when I come. So he, he, he gives us a bit of a framework in giving this instruction. He says, look, set something aside. So give thought to it. Don't just approach this haphazardly, but give thought to this and then set that aside, he says, at the first day of the week. So there is a routine time where he's saying, set an amount aside, and we'll, we'll talk about what the amount is. But that first thing he says is, is be intentional about it. Don't just, like, if it's to the church, don't just come in and sit down and go, well, I, you know what, I didn't throw something in the plate. Or, hey, some, there's a missionary that needs something. I'm just going to throw something. In. That's okay to an extent, I suppose. But for us to be faithful beyond just a one-time Eh, give it no thought, it becomes an item of worship once we give intent to it. So on that first day, he says, now, how do we know how much? Before we get into that, I want to kind of just briefly explore kind of generally where, where people often are, the spectrum that we're talking about. Because some will give a little bit because they're just checking a box of faithfulness, Right? country music, if you want to learn some of this kind of theology, just listen to country music. One of the most famous lines or thoughts is like, throw a couple of bucks in the plate at church. You, know, you may know what song that is, but there are several of them I've heard. It's just like, you know, I want to do the right thing, so I'm going to toss something in the church, and I'll feel good about myself. And that's the implication. I'm doing the right thing. And so it's a, it's a box checker where it's like, toss it in. And, and, and these folks do it either out of duty or, or just they like the feeling that they get. Some give for the tax benefits. Let's be honest, it happens. And so giving is sometimes dependent on how many deductions are needed. Well, let me check and see how much, how much charitable giving I need to give and then give that amount. Uh, please, I'm not making any uh, saying anybody here does that. I'm just saying this is kind of the spectrum that we often see in the church. Some give dependent on their emotions. Talked about the commercials last week. If the dog, you know, has got the right kind of eyes, you know, the, the pouty eyes, or, or if it's an, an adoption kind of thing, if the music is just right, it's like, I can't help myself but give. I just, I just raise it right here and I got to do something with that. Take all the way, I'll take that all away and maybe nothing is done. Take away the sad eyes, take away the good music and, and there's nothing that is given or certainly not as much. Or some don't give at all because they don't have much to give and so they feel like they can't afford to. We'll deal with that in just a second. Some, some don't give because they have much. And so, or they don't have much, so they don't think that their money is needed. I, I can't give enough, so it doesn't make a difference. 
And some, frankly, just don't give because they're greedy. They'll come to the church or they'll take advantage of whatever opportunities they can, but they're not really going to give anything because it's all about, about them. And I have absolutely no idea where you are in that. I don't touch the money. I don't look at the money. I don't, as far as this church goes, elders, deacons, we stay away from that because I don't want to know how much you give or don't give. Because I don't want this to be directed at anybody. So I step back and I say, this is something we all have to consider where we are and why we do what we do. And are we doing it for the glory of self? Or are we doing it for the glory of God? But none of these things that I've described are biblical. None of these are Christ-honoring positions to be in. So I want to give you some Christ-honoring biblical criteria. So we've still got verse 2 of 1 Corinthians 16 up there. And he said, on the first day of the week, each of you is to set something aside and save. And here it says, interesting, in keeping with how he is prospering. In keeping with how he is prospering. Now, what is he talking about here? He said, well, if you have enough, give. And if not, don't. No, he's already dealt with that. He's talking to people who don't have anything. But he is talking about a proportionate amount. So more like a percentage. And what that percentage is, the Bible gives 10%, but frankly, that's, that's, a, that's a starting point, frankly. But it is to prayerfully determine what am I supposed to give, where am I supposed to give, how am I supposed to give, and you give it proportional to what you have. But again, I mean, I say these things, but then the Scripture is clear. Sometimes I have to give a whole lot more than what would be proportional And so I give according to what God says, and there's a reason for that. In 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 5, he said this, Therefore I considered it necessary to urge you, brothers, to go on and to uh, go on ahead of you and arrange in advance the generous gift that you've promised so that it'll be ready. So that it is a it is an act of generosity. So it is coming from a heart of being generous. Being giving, being generous, being loving and compassionate and wanting to be the hands and the feet of Jesus. Now, what that looks like is determined by how much, honestly, we want to be blessed. What is it that you want to give based on where you stand with the Lord? This is not about your standing, that is... Completely, But there, sometimes the blessing follows the obedience. Most of the time, blessing follows obedience. But if you look with me in verse 6, he says, The point is this. The person who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And the person who sows generously will also reap generously. So this idea of sowing is like throwing out seed. You throw out a lot of seed, right? You don't get much from it. If you throw out much, you get much in return. So this is a little bit weird because Paul is telling us something that doesn't really make sense. Because when it comes to seed, yeah, I can throw that out and I get a lot back. But when it comes to throwing out my money, that doesn't make sense. Because if I've got a whole bunch of money and I give a whole bunch away, that means I have a whole lot less. Right? If I, if I have a little bit of money and I keep that, Well, I certainly don't have less, so I really have more than the person who gave to start with. The math doesn't work. Ten plus one equals more. Ten minus one equals less. And yet there's this 
God math at work, if you will. Where he says here, the, one, the person who sows, the person who generously gives to the kingdom work will also give, uh, receive little. And the person who sows generously will also reap generously. So with God, 10 minus 9 equals more. That makes sense. And you might not buy that. And so you're just like, I, don't, I think I'm going to keep what I got. Okay, so how much you want to be blessed? If the word of God says the person who sows sparingly will reap sparingly, but the person who sows generously will reap generous, generously, that, that should mean something. That should say something to us. So based on that, look at verse 7. Each person should do as he has decided in his heart has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or out of compulsion, since God loves a cheerful giver. So we have to be really careful here, or we could become a transactional giver. right? We could just say, okay, I want more blessing. I want more. I want more money, so I'm going to invest more money. And if we do that, then we're, we're stepping out of the, the will of God. We're stepping out of the teaching of the Word of God So the rest of this passage is going to help us to understand and to guard against that by teaching us God's plan for our resources. And so, first off, we have uh, that our giving is a means through which we grow in discipleship. What we do with what we have is a means, an opportunity for us to become more like Jesus and to follow Jesus more fully. Look at verses 8 through 10. God is able to make make every grace overflow to you so that in every way, always having everything you need, you may excel in every good work. So real quick, so God is able to make. So regardless of what it might look like, Regardless of, what, of how the books balance, God is able to make every grace overflow to you. Now, don't be too tightly defining what that grace is, but so that in every way, always having everything, you may do what? Excel in every good work. Verse 9, as it is written, he distributed freely. He gave to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. This is who God is. This is who Christ is. Verse 10, now the one who provides seed for the sower and bread for the food will also provide and multiply your seed and increase the harvest. Here's a harvest of your righteousness. So we talked a lot about how Matthew 5, Jesus talks about God gives us what we need. He gives us often an abundance of what we need. But he says, look, you will increase in your righteousness. So in other words, what you do makes you more like Jesus. So what you do with what you have and how you do it and why you do it and how much you do it in faith, in obedience, increases the righteousness. And it's Christ in me that is righteous, not myself. So I grow in Christ-likeness. Verse 11, he says, you will be enriched in every way. All right, that sounds cool. You will be enriched 
in every way. He defines what that every way is, but, but he says, look, why? <laughs> for all generosity. You're going to be enriched in every way for all generosity, which, which produces thanksgiving to God. <coughs> Excuse me. Why do we have more than we need to give more out of thanksgiving to God? To be conduits of blessings for others, for good works. Not that lead to righteousness, but flow out of Christ's righteousness in us. John Piper said this defines the meaning of and for wealth. Through wealth, we can multiply our joy through good works. Every provision for good work is provided through the local church. We simply have to let it go. What is more than enough is not meant for you, but for the joy of giving. We have everything we need within the ecclesia. It's just a matter of saying, like the first church did, Acts chapter 2. It's not mine. It's not mine. I don't claim ownership. So it's God's. And He can do with it what He will. He increases. He enriches us for all generosity when we experience God's provision and are used to be a conduit of blessing through our giving it produces it makes it manufactures joy within us this leads to more joy in giving man Christmas time man I, I remember when I was a little kid I just wanted my presence right give, can I be first give me mine give me mine can I open the biggest one first been there right I'm gonna tell you I've seen as our family has grown uh, in age and as I got older, as our kids got older, when we get together for Christmas, there is more of an argument on who gets to open my gift first. Right? It's like, I, want, I can't wait for you to open my gift. And, and it's what I've watched is when you see that person opening it up, and there's like, oh, there's a, there is something, man. It's just like, that's awesome. I am so glad that that made them happy. I'm so glad they like it. And I start to realize, and we start to realize in practice that it is more blessed to give than to receive. That makes me more joy-filled even than the ones I receive. And this is the, the kind of principle that we see in the Word of God. Secondly, it is a means through which worship is produced. Verse 12, For the ministry of this service is not supplying the needs of the saints, did I read that right? For the ministry of this service is not only, there it is, I knew it didn't sound right, not only supply, supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many expressions of thanks to God. And then he goes on. Because of the proof provided by this ministry, they will glorify God for your obedient confession of the gospel of Christ and for your generosity in sharing with them uh, and with everyone. It is a source of worship. It brings about worship. When God meets needs through his people, the people don't get the credit. The people get the, get the blessing, but God gets the glory. And it causes us to thank God for your provision through others. And that is one of the primary responsibilities of the church, to be conduits of blessing through uh, and two other people. So not only do we serve as God's hands and feet to meet the needs, but it is a form of worship that results in God's glory. And then finally, number three, 
It is a means through which koinonia is developed. It's a means through which that fellowship that we've been talking about that seems so elusive, it's a way in which it is developed. Look at verse 14. And as they pray on your behalf, they will have a, have a deep affection for you. Why? Because of their surpassing grace of God in you. So because of your obedience to God, because of your generosity, because you were willing to give it. Remember this koinonia is self-sacrificing. Because you were willing to give of yourself and especially, I think, when you're giving out of what you don't have. When you're sacrificing something of yourself for someone else, it builds a relationship with the people, with the recipients, to such a degree that that kind of koinonia is established. So it is, it is a catalyst for koinonia. And again, that may start with you. That may be you who decides, I'm going to be uh, this conduit of surpassing grace of God through me to other people. There is a reciprocity in giving even if and especially if it results in someone praying for you and for glorifying God. How much better can that get? That's the kind of thing we're talking about. That's the kind of thing that we want. And all of the praise, honor, and glory goes back to God. Verse 15 He concludes by saying, thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. And it goes all the way back to the grace of God. This is koinonia. This is what we want to experience. I hope you want to experience this. But it takes effort. It takes thought. It takes reflection. It takes prayer. It takes faith. And it takes us all. So why don't we together determine that this covenant body is going to pursue and live in this koinonia that is going to make an impact on the life of every other member of this ecclesia and it is going to affect the world outside because they are going to see our love for one another and glorify God. Lord, may it be. Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you are the great giver. We sometimes talk about how no one can outgive God, and that is absolutely true. <laughs> That's because you've already given everything. And so, Lord, please protect us from hearing anything that resembles giving in order to get more stuff. But that we will hear. When we step out on faith and we give in gratitude, in generosity and love for other people, Lord, we will receive a blessing that comes from that and receive more in order to be a conduit of grace to other people in more and better ways. Have your way in this body, Lord. Protect us from the enemy that wants to destroy us. Lord, may we know that as we pursue koinonia, the attacks will come. They always do. When we get serious about being the church, Lord, the the attacks come. We have seen it in this church life from the beginning, from inside and from without, Lord, just like the Thessalonica church did as well. God, protect us 
Form us, strengthen us, give us resolve. May we stand on your word with confidence and boldness, with grace and humility. That you would do within us, Lord, what only you can do. You would do through us what only you can do. For your glory. Amen. Let's stand together.